2: What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. You guys know me as your liberty-loving Latino amigo right here, 17 blocks away from Madison Square Garden, at Rich Valdez with an S on all the social media. And check this out, there's a fire blazing on 6th Avenue in front of Fox News headquarters, the Wall Street Journal offices, and the New York Post offices at the News Corp building because an emotionally disturbed man has set... The Christmas tree adorned with red, white, and blue lights has set it ablaze. Now, you would think this is Antifa, it's BLM, it's whatever. Look, I don't know the answer. I've got the name of the individual that did it right here. He's 49 years old, and he's known to be a um, a vagrant in the area. Maybe he hates Fox News. Maybe he hates America. Maybe he hates Christmas. We don't know. They're saying that. Uh, The alleged arsonist, Craig Tamahana, 49 years old, he's a Pacific Islander, or at least appears to be one, is facing a slew of charges including arson, criminal mischief, reckless endangerment, and criminal trespass. Now, this is as of Wednesday morning. Police sources said that Tamahana, who has an address in Brooklyn, is an emotionally disturbed person who's known to hang out in the area. Now, what I find interesting, or I should say maybe even problematic with this, is that This isn't the first time we've seen people attack targets to make political statements, right? In March of 1954, there was an armed terrorist representing a Puerto Rican separatist group that shot members of Congress, right? The F-A-L-N and other groups. I believe they're called um, Las Fuerzas Armadas No Se Que de Libertad Nacional, something like that. They're crazy. In March of 1971... A bomb was set off in the Capitol by friends of guess who? That's right. Barack Obama. And again in 1983. So, I mean, this is not new. This has been a a M.O. of the left for quite some time using fire, using deception uh, to, to distract you. Right. They set a fire so you can look over here while we do this. It's to create that sense of everything's crumbling, turn to the government. It's a very Marxist Leninist tactic. And I talked about this some years ago in a podcast that we did of why they use fire the way they do. But I might do it again because, you know, that stuff needs refreshing and revisiting. Uh, But I got some really good stuff for you today. So you do not want to miss what we have today. Now, what I find interesting is that there's a lot of this that's gone on, right? Some of the more modern left-wing terrorist groups in the United States developed from remnants of the Weather Underground, the Weathermen and other extremist elements from the Students for a Democrat Society known as SDS back in 1973, 1975. There was another one, uh, another uh, group, a bunch of bank robberies, murders, all that stuff. You've heard from Joe Connor on this program talking about how his dad was killed in the bombing at uh, Francis Tavern in Manhattan. So there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of this that's going on, and it's happened over the years. And one of those bombers, Samuel Melville, Actually taught the uh, Puerto Rican separatist group, the FALN and others that were doing bombings, how to use bombs, how to create pipe bombs, because he was an engineer and turned into a crazy radical bomber and ultimately uh, paid some very, very uh, hefty prices for the choices that he made. And there's a brand new book that we're going to get into in the next segment called American Time Bomb, and it's written by his son, Joshua Melville, and it's a real look inside the mind of a serial bomber, a serial domestic terrorist. And the title again, American Time Bomb, Attica, Sam Melville, and a son's search for answers. And a fascinating story. My purpose is not to attack him, to interrogate him, to beat him up. I don't wanna hit him over the head, I just wanna have a conversation with him, and we're gonna do that coming straight ahead. But it just brings so much of this um, to light you kind of really get a sense of this is what they do. Now, look, I'm not negating the fact that there are these um, far right radicals, you know, the ones that have tried to blow up abortion clinics, the ones that uh, the Timothy McVeigh's and those people, uh, whack jobs. I think whack jobs exist on both sides of the aisle. But for sure, it's part of the Marxist-Leninist-Communist movement. This is part and parcel of what they do. I've never been to a conservative conference like CPAC. Big shout to Matt Schlapp, Mercedes Schlapp, the whole team over there. I've never been to a CPAC where they said to blow something up. Violence isn't part of the conservative equation the way it is part of the left-wing equation with the Marxists, the Leninists, the socialists. This is what they do. They use these tactics to get their, uh, their way. That's what makes those that use this tactic terrorists to begin with. Now, listen, whether this Christmas tree in New York City at the Fox News headquarters, if that's terrorism, they should do what they got to do with them. Whether it was, whether it wasn't, I don't know. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I'm not going to get stressed out and hit the drive through But I know a lot of people do, especially during the holidays. People get stressed out. They start stress eating. That's why I use the Noom app, noom.com slash this is America. If you want to find out about it or check out the trial, you can get a personalized trial at Noom.com slash this is America. Noom was developed by psychologists so that you can have the framework to keep things in check, whether it's staying hydrated, tracking your meals, tracking your mood, reading articles to help you improve your mood so that you don't go and stress eat. Because the more you know, the more you know. So what have you got to lose? Go to the website now, noom.com, dot com, noom.com slash this is America, noom.com. Slash this is America. Check out your personalized trial. It comes with a coach. It's an app. You could use it anytime, anywhere. If I were you, I wouldn't wait any longer. Noom.com slash this is America. N O O M.com slash this is America. Now, straight ahead, the interview with Joshua Melville, author of American Time Bomb. Attica, Sam Melville, and a son's search for answers. Don't move a muscle. Keep it locked right there. This is one interview that I highly recommend. You know, I don't do a lot of guests, but I really want you to listen to this. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. This
0: is America. Woodhouse Nissan offers a variety of SUVs and crossovers to fit your lifestyle. Whether you're looking for an SUV with high towing capability or a crossover with all-wheel drive, you can expect a variety of safety features, plenty of seating, ample cargo space, and innovative design to tackle virtually any adventure. Explore the Nissan lineup of SUVs and crossovers featuring Rogue, Rogue Sport, Kicks, Murano, Pathfinder, and Armada. Visit one of our two Nissan locations or shop online at woodhouse.com. College can be expensive, but saving now can help your students save later. Give your child's college savings a boost by registering for a chance at a $1,000 savings plan deposit for 6th through 12th graders. Sign up today at iowastudentloan.org slash register.
1: By the way, Rich has a great podcast, too.
0: This is America.
1: He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. This is America with Rich Valdez.
2: All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, and as promised... It's kind of like that TV show that we watch, uh, Inside the Mind. In this case, it's Inside the Mind of a homegrown terrorist. How did they get there? And we're going to get the bird's eye view from his son, who's had the, uh, the courage to, to write a book about it and tell this story. I'm really happy that he's here because I think so much of the time, especially us in, in political talk, we, we talk about things in a very abstract manner. But we don't really know what really happened. What is the family thinking? Who are the people that are involved in these radical movements? How does it happen? So I think we're going to get to the bottom of that. But I want to read you an excerpt from the book. To me, it was very moving. And it starts with this. It says, the day we met, Sharon was living in a a more sedate life in Brooklyn Heights in a townhouse with a new husband and a new last name. The remains of the fierce radical were reduced to an earthy sundress and a turquoise pendant. She kept her hair long, however, to train the frizz. She wore it like a nest atop her head. Working in the law... Because that kept them together, connected to their cause. When asked what she did by strangers, she would just simply say, I'm a mom. And she must have been good at it, too. Her hug took the wind out of me. My God, it's like being in a time machine. You look so much like him. And by him, we're talking about Sam Melville, a dad who became a radical in progressive politics and the anti-war movement in the 60s, ended up becoming a bomber. I think this is a remarkable story because we see so much of this kind of repeating today. People becoming increasingly violent, increasingly hostile in the effort for, uh, quote unquote, social justice. It's interesting to see this dichotomy. So I want to bring in Joshua Melville. He's the son of Sam Melville, the convicted bomber who wrote the book American Time Bomb, Attica, Sam Melville and a son's search for answers. Joshua, welcome to This is America.
1: Thank you, Rich. Thanks for having me.
2: It's my pleasure. I really and I meant every word of that. I really I have a lot of respect for you coming forward, irrespective of differences politically that we may have or I may have with your dad's movement. I'm really curious to know what it was like in the home, what it was like, you know, from your perspective, because, you know, uh, a quick story. My dad, I found out after we buried him, was muscle for a little illegal gambling front in the back of a bodega in Brooklyn. Right. I didn't lose any respect for him. It was just something that I was like, wow, I didn't know that, you know, when he was a younger man. So I think sometimes as kids, we always look at our dad as a hero and whatnot. And that begins to change as we get older and we learn how things really are sometimes. Tell us a little bit about what it was like being his son. Tell us who was Sam Melville to you?
1: Well, uh, as I call him in the uh, in the introduction of the book, he was kind of my giant. He was he was the one man amusement park and I was the only one in line for the ride. I was his only child and he was everything to me. And then, um, you know, one day he wasn't there anymore. Uh, I was seeing him only on weekends and then those weekends became more intermittent. And then uh, one day he kind of just disappeared. And I started talking to him through letters. He told me that he was going to go work at an Indian reservation to to help Native Americans. And uh, then we started corresponding through letters. And then one day the letters stopped and then about A year and a half later, when I was 11 years old, uh, my mother sat me down and explained to me why my father had disappeared, that he had gone underground, that he had been part of a radical movement to uh, bomb buildings, to protest the uh, U.S. involvement in Vietnam, and um, that he was killed in a large prison uprising, uh, which since then has become known as the Attica Uprising of 1971. And the way my... Mother portrayed my father's um, involvement in all this was very passive. Yeah, He was, you know, he was betrayed. He was led astray and betrayed by crazy hippies was the explanation she gave me for why he did these things. But as I discovered through uh, my research years later, which is revealed in the book, he was actually very proactive in this. He wasn't, you know, led astray. He was, if anything, doing the leading.
2: Mm-hmm. And the
1: group that he was involved in ended up becoming inspirational for dozens of other uh, radical groups, some of which the FBI continued to hunt well after his death into the
2: 1970s and 80s. So h- how did he get from point A from to B, you know, from being a, a regular guy that all of a sudden becomes this, this radical that starts bombing things?
1: Well, it started with uh, his relationship with his father. Uh, my grandfather uh, was an organizer in the Communist Labor Party of America. And he ended up becoming an officer in that organization. And um, in the 1950s, uh, uh, my father was uh, um, uh, exposed to uh, many uh, intense radical minds, liberal radical minds of the time, including celebrities like Paul Robeson. And um, he didn't become radicalized at that point, but he did uh, you know, start to adopt his father's point of view uh, of uh, communist uh, um, politics and how communism should be you know, at least a third party. Uh, to our two party system in America. Uh, But then he and his father had a falling out because and this is kind of ironic. His father remarried, had another baby. And in that marriage, he decided to become middle class. His wife at that point wanted, you know, a big house on Long Island with a pool and to send the kids to private school. And so my grandfather quit the Communist Labour Party (laughs) and bought a restaurant to become a business person. And this enraged my father. He felt that my that his father had sold out and become a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess he was determined to never uh, follow in his father's footsteps. It became one of those. I'll never be like a a person like my old man kind of situation. And he you know, at that point in time, he had done the exact opposite. He had uh, betrayed most of his personal politics at the at the behest of my mother. He had gotten a job as, as an engineer in a successful consulting and design firm in New York. And he worked on uh, the plumbing engineering for Brooklyn Borough Hall, Lincoln Center, a number of other famous buildings. He was successful at what he did. He was living in a large apartment on the Upper West Side in a dormant building, pretty much emulating everything he hated about his father. And so at that point in time, uh, he decided to, uh, to quit all that. And he uh, left my mother. He left me. Uh, he went underground Uh, he eventually uh, quit his job because they asked him to design um, apartheid bathrooms in a mall in south africa and he didn't feel that uh you know uh dirty water can distinguish between the color of a person's skin and he didn't feel he had the uh, talents to design racist toilets so he quit and he went underground and he started a uh, a radical uh, cell um, and they ended up bombing around 14 buildings to protest the U.S. imperialism and involvement in the
2: Vietnam War. Wow, so let's let's walk us through that a little bit because uh, I mean, obviously there was some anti-war protesting and, and the communist influence for sure, but uh, the, I, some of them, were, were they all federal buildings or what was the makeup of the buildings? Where were these buildings?
1: They were all in New York City, somewhere in the Chicago area. Um, they were not all federal buildings, but the two that he ended up confessing to Uh, were federal buildings, which was the Army Whitehall Induction Center uh, on Whitehall Street in downtown New York, which is not there anymore. And um, the, uh, the federal building, which is part of the courthouse district in New York, which is the offices of most federal judges in the United States.
2: Wow. Well, Joshua Melville, the book is American Time Bomb. We're gonna get to a little bit more of that. Don't move a muscle, keep it locked right there. I'm Rich Valdez, this is America. This is America.
0: Woodhouse Nissan offers a variety of SUVs and crossovers to fit your lifestyle. Whether you're looking for an SUV with high towing capability or a crossover with all wheel drive, you can expect a variety of safety features, plenty of seating, ample cargo space, and innovative design to tackle virtually any adventure. Explore the Nissan lineup of SUVs and crossovers featuring Rogue, Rogue Sport, Kicks, Murano, Pathfinder, and Armada. Visit one of our two Nissan locations or shop online at woodhouse.com. Shopify presents cool sheets from aha to... Lying awake while you bake isn't cool. I suffered from the wrong kind of hot in bed, heat-induced insomnia. That was my aha moment. Bed sheets that keep you cool. Then I thought, how do I even sell bed sheets? That's when I had the idea that made it all possible. Signing up on Shopify. start selling online today sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22 shopify.com slash free 22
1: this is america he's got the best head of hair in podcasting this is america with rich
2: valdez all right america welcome back so we're jumping right back into this interview with joshua melville son of samuel melville the uh Gentlemen, we were just talking about who became radicalized, an engineer who became a homegrown terrorist in the name of communism, doing anti-war protesting, bombing federal buildings in New York. And my question to you, Joshua, is did you guys, obviously you saw some of this happening, but did your mom notice it before you did? Were the neighbors tipped off? Did anybody say, man, he's really gone off the deep end, he's wearing hammers and sickles, or did it seem very natural, this progression?
1: So my mother and he were separated by this point. And he was uh, um, not really in in communication with her. She'd hired a couple of attorneys to see if she could find him where he was working. But that was uh, proved unsuccessful. He was good at avoiding attorneys as he was good at avoiding the FBI. Uh, But she would see in the papers um, buildings that were bombed. And she just had an instinct that it was him because of Mm -hmm. everything she knew about him. And you have to remember, this was a time in America where there was a lot of protests and there was a lot of Molotov cocktail style bombing. Yeah. But no one had really bombed a skyscraper yet with a, with a uh, time device. And wow. so he was the first to do that. There were other radical groups in other countries who were doing that, but he was the first to do it here in that period of time. And uh, the big one came when uh, Marine Midland Bank was blown up um, in June, I believe, of 1969. And uh, no one was, uh, was killed. And it's important that your listeners understand there's a big difference between the type of bombings my father did Versus what you might expect from um, from uh, what we would call radical t- radical extremists today, uh, my father chose his targets based on their political significance. <clears throat> excuse me, and um, he designed the bombs so that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't harm anybody. They always went off at two o'clock in the morning. He was an engineer, so he knew where to place the bombs and designed them so that they would just cause property damage. Now, this is very different from uh, extremists today who choose their targets based on convenience. And also based on the amount of collateral debt that they can inflict uh, for their cause. So there's a big difference in my father's version of what we might call terrorism versus Timothy McVeigh
2: style terrorism or radical extremist terrorism. Right. Yeah. He so, was trying to make a point and not hurt people in the process, is what I read.
1: That's correct. He considered himself a pacifist, as are the historians who've written about him.
2: Now, when with these bombings, did he ultimate did he ever drop the ball? Did people did he end up killing people in these bombings? No, no one was ever killed in any of his bombings. Got it. Yeah. So unlike the the crazy radicals uh, from uh, my parents' island of Puerto Rico that bombed Francis Tavern and and other groups, they were they were leaving a trail of bodies and, yes, and uh, aiming and cops and whatnot. If
1: you if you're familiar with the Puerto Rican uh, national group called Myra, uh, my no. father was uh, at the M I R A. Good Google search on that one. My father uh, was one of my father's cohorts. Was one of the people who ended up founding. Myra, who was a big Puerto Rican
2: radical. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy how this all comes together. So, OK, so tell us. Uh, so he's doing these bombings. He's not hurting people. Uh, how does he eventually get caught up? How does the FBI uh, catch up with him and what happens? Well, that is a subject of debate. <clears throat> and for many years, his um, his ex his girl
1: after they were arrested, his ex-girlfriend, uh, wrote quite a bit about him. She went underground to avoid arrest for around five years. And during that time, she wrote a manifesto. And then when she eventually surrendered and turned herself over to the FBI, uh, years later, she wrote a tell-all, a quote, tell-all book. Uh, her name is Jane Alpert. And in her version of events, which has become kind of the, the accepted history of the events, um, according to her, my father snitched to a known FBI informant, which is what got everybody arrested. And this was the story that had kind of remained standing and unchallenged for uh, probably around 30 years until my book came along and I subpoenaed tens of thousands of FBI documents, which took me over a decade to assemble. And what I realized after assembling all these pieces was that her story was completely untrue. Not only did my father not confess and give names to an FBI informant, but in fact, the the entire group was surrounded by FBI informants, that there were other people in the group who were also being targeted by the FBI. So it was really no way for anybody to get away with this for any long period of time. Uh, The FBI had over 300 agents working on this case at any given time, and uh, it was just a matter of time before they got caught. And today, of course, uh, we have mountains of technology to assist law enforcement. So many of the things that they did to get away with this for the amount of time that they did, which was around six months, would have been quashed in a matter of days using today's technology.
2: Wow. You know, and it's interesting. You look at this and you think, man. The FBI has been involved with so many radical groups throughout the years, whether it's uh, the group I was referring to, the FALN, or even the stuff that's happening in January 6th. There's a lot of connections now to saying that the FBI had people inside of them and whatnot and that there's always a mole. There's always a rat. How do you draw or could you draw some parallels between what you saw as a kid growing up and and the movement in the 60s with the communists uh, doing what they did and bombings and today as it seems like we're going back in that direction?
1: We clearly are. Um, we're repeating history almost on a month-by-month schedule from the late 1960s, say 67, 68, going forward into the early 70s.
2: Now, Joshua Melville, th- there's a lot of talk about the FBI because it's my opinion that they're, they're not some sort of um, altruistic group, but I think oftentimes they're, they're pseudo-closeted fascists that want to control the outcome in the name of what they call justice and they're willing to infiltrate any group at any cost to get their way.
1: Yeah, that I think that that's a fair description of them and I think the the tell as as they say in poker, you know, the thing that gives gives you away that you don't intend to give you away whether or not you have a good or, or bad hand is exactly what happened in regard to how they dealt with the Trump administration and how the the left has completely embraced the FBI as heroes, whereas in the 60s, the FBI was was their worst enemy. And that's because the FBI doesn't really have a political ideology, in my opinion. And the only way you can know this is if you study the history of the FBI. Now, Mm -hmm. in Chapter 3 of my book, which is called Hoover's Black Problem, um, I summarize the history of the FBI leading up to the events in the story. And you know, they the FBI Hoover hated the Ku Klux Klan, Hoover hated uh, the communists, Hoover hated anything that, that, in his view, disrupted the Norman Rockwell view of what America was supposed to be. He didn't care about whether you were black or white or your ideology. It just so happens that during the 60s, it was the new left. It was the Yippies, the Black Panthers, and then you know, eventually the Weathermen who were doing that. And so, you know, at that point in time, the left hated the FBI and would never trust the FBI, and everything they say is a lie. And pretty much every radical that I interviewed for this book felt that way. And then I had I been able to interview them now in 2021, I would say, well, is that the same FBI who you think is telling the truth about Republicans and the conservatives? Because if the FBI lies, don't they lie about everybody or do they just only lie about some people some of the time when they happen to agree or disagree with you?
2: I guess based on what you remember, based on what you know. What do you think uh, a radical bomber like your dad would think of groups like that today, like Antifa? What do you think his um, his take would be? Boy, is that a
1: good question. So
2: most of the radicals that I interviewed were in their 40s and 50s
1: um, at the time that I interviewed them, early 40s to mid 50s. And then I re-interviewed them a second time when I was doing uh, when I got after I'd sold the book to Chicago Review Press. It's Something important to remember is that most of these people in midlife became what we would call today conservative. OK, yes, they still talked about liberal ideology, but they owned homes, BMWs, businesses. They had taken on they adopted mainstream life. Now, would my father have done that? I don't know. He was pretty extreme. He was the exception to the rule. And that's probably one of the reasons why he's a hero to these people, because every one of them knows that deep down <laughs> a lot of them are frauds when my father was a genuine article and paid the ultimate price for it. What would my father think of Antifa today or BLM? That's I, I, hard to say. If he stayed true to his beliefs, as he did when he died when he was 36, um, then he would probably say, burn, baby, burn. He would say, this is, this is a great way to, you know, no problem, burn it all down, because he believed that the people who were designed by the universe or God or whatever you believe in, The people who were designed to tear down the system were not supposed to be concerned with how the system was going to be rebuilt, that that was supposed to be somebody else's job. And that was their justification for committing violence and destruction. It wasn't their responsibility to rebuild it. And I believe that carries true right over to today. They don't seem to care about all the harm they're doing to the country and to the economy and to just people in general. It's all about what we are the immediate need of getting a message across right now. Now, I'm not here to judge that but that seems to be what's happening. But if he grew up, you know, after prison, if he'd become a teacher, went back to architecture and eventually became absorbed into mainstream life, then he'd be like many other radicals that I interviewed for this project, which is, he would have put it down. He would have condemned it. He would have still had, uh, had political uh, leftist viewpoints, but those would kind of just be almost window dressing for the fact that they had gone mainstream and had adopted an extremely bourgeois form of life. And one of the reasons I chose to write the book now was kind of as a cautionary tale, because we well, now we have millennials, and millennials actually make up a larger percentage of the US population than baby boomers did back in the 60s. And their voice is quite powerful, and a lot of them are quite angry at the government, and, and for many reasons rightfully so. Um, but the choice of venue to express that anger in terms of well, what someone called peaceful protest and others would call riots is an exact analog of what we, what we experienced in the 60s. And where it eventually leads is is a little on the scary side. And the way I see it going, it is escalating, and we will eventually, if, uh, if something doesn't get done, we will eventually see more Sam Melvilles. We'll see more bombs going off. We'll see more extreme violence of U.S. citizens committing acts of violence against other U.S. citizens. And the division between left and right is just as wide as it was in the 60s, but it does seem like some of the... Uh, causes have kind of reversed, because back then liberals were pro-labor. <laughs> today it seems like liberals are anti-labor. Yeah. Um, and back then liberals were pro-Israel. Today, so t- today it seems like most liberals are anti-Israel. And I could go on and on about the kind of role reversals that we're seeing
2: in the, uh, in the extreme of politics. The actual liberal really doesn't exist the way they did, but it seems, at least in my opinion, that they've really been kind of taken over with a, a- I guess a, a more pure, a more boiled down version of, of actual communism. It, it is strange because they they do seem to
1: um, embrace a lot of Marxist ideas. My father was a big Marxist. His father was a big Marxist. He comes from a you know a, a serious Marxist training and indoctrination. So I, I see a lot of Marxist. Fam- I see a lot of familiar Marxist um, me- um, slogans and tropes <clears throat> being used to package what seems to me to be a new form of, uh, of conservatism. I know those words don't mean anything anymore because left is right and right is left, and we're all kind of politically homeless these days. But um, a lot of the causes that seem to be adopted by liberals were once, you know, causes that were, that were adopted by conservatives, yet they've packaged it in, uh, in Marxist rhetoric. So it is, it is fascinating. Give me a couple of examples. Oh, boy. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> you got about a minute and a <laughs> half. Well... Um, One of them, a very obvious one, I think, would be uh, gun control. Um, So you didn't see a lot of liberals in the 60s complaining about um, that we had poor gun control laws. And that's because at the time it was fashionable for the Black Panthers to arm themselves. Um, Yet now we see a lot of liberals who are uh, concerned about gun control. Coincidentally, at the same time that pot is becoming legal, it almost seems like a like a conservative view to try to make people more docile, less able to defend themselves and more dependent upon the government.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I don't know that I, I share that view, but I do think it's interesting how the roles have reversed, because you're right. I think the liberal is actually um, a dying breed, if you will, in America, the the, you know, the Alan Dershowitz type of liberal, uh, whereas it's it seems to be somewhat replaced by the Bill de Blasio, Bernie Sanders type of uh, more radical leftist, at least in my opinion, from what I've observed. So, okay, tell us, I guess, ultimately, I think it took a lot of courage and a lot of um, wherewithal to put the book together. Tell us, uh, what is it that you're hoping people take away from a project like this that took you, you know, 10 years to put together? Oh,
1: yeah, more than that, actually. what do they take away? I hope they, they get a broader understanding that everything we're experiencing now we've experienced before, that history does repeat itself. And if we don't pay attention to what happened last time, we could end up in a worse situation than we are now. And I, I in, in the book, I talk about you know how law enforcement goes about doing its job um, and, uh, and how radicals go about um, fulfilling their agenda. And I try to go out of my way to make it a fair and balanced viewpoint. I say in the introduction that... This book is, uh, you know, examines, uh, examines people that, that have complex moral prisms and view life through those complex moral prisms, and that indeed there are no clear good guys and bad guys in this story, including me. And I hope people can read this book and come away with a greater understanding that um, the best way, that, that number one, you know, we are experiencing enormous change, a lot of it's dangerous, but the, really the best way, in my opinion, to make the world a better place is to just be a better parent, you know. Uh, raise your children and teach them good values and teach them to be self-sufficient. And uh, I
2: guess maybe that's my ultimate message. I think that's one of the best messages I've heard in a long time. Something I harp on a lot myself. If we do the right thing from when you know when they're little, hopefully uh, we'll get it right. Well, that's Joshua Melville, the son of Sam Melville, who uh, was killed in Attica after he was imprisoned for bombing federal buildings. The book is American Time Bomb by Joshua Melville. American Time Bomb, Attica, Sam Melville, and a Sun Search for Answers. You can get that on Amazon.com or wherever you get your books. And make sure you grab a copy. Grab two because Christmas is coming up. Joshua Melville, thank you so much for joining us on This is America. Thank you, Rich. Have a good day. You too. All right, straight ahead, more to come. Don't move a muscle, Rich Valdez. This is America.
0: This is America. In times like
2: these, it's so important that we focus on the facts. I always tell you to focus on the facts. I think you hear that everywhere you go, and that's because facts are irrefutable. It's the bottom line. It's the real deal. And in times like this of uncertainty, we need to rely on the facts. I get my facts from JustFacts.com. That's F-A-C-T-S, JustFacts.com. Go to JustFacts.com and sign up for their newsletter, JustFacts.com forward slash rich. Just put my name in there and you'll get it for free
0: Explore the Nissan lineup of SUVs and crossovers featuring Rogue, Rogue Sport, Kicks, Murano, Pathfinder, and Armada. Visit one of our two Nissan locations or shop online at Woodhouse.com. This is America. The 45th President Donald Trump thinks it's an honor to speak with Rich Valdez. Oh,
1: very good, Mister Screener. Yeah, It's an honor. Thanks, Rich.
0: The honor is all yours conservative talk with a dash of sofrito now here's rich valdez
2: all right america welcome back so yeah kick butt interview there with um joshua melville son of sam melville the uh ticking time bomb american time bomb now what's interesting about the whole thing is this is nothing new now you've heard him say this is how the radicalization happened How did he become radicalized? Following the Marxist, Leninist, communist roadmap that's been out there forever. I mean, that's how. As far as I can see, they've been active in the United States since the early 1900s, nothing new. But again, this came as a surprise to me, of course, when I first encountered it. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this stuff. Duh, right in our face. That's how they work. Now, back in the 60s, there was an anti-communist by the name of G. Edward Griffin. I did a whole show on this probably two years ago and played clips of it, uh, I think maybe on one of my Levin films. But I'm going to play a short clip of it now, just to give you uh, a little bit of the flavor for the stuff he's talking about. Because once you know what the communists are up to, what the Leninists, what the Marxists teaches, which today is wrapped in a softer uh, language, socialism, Democrat socialism, because they feel like, oh, you know, it sounds so much easier and more palatable if we do it that way. But a big part of what they do is they want to burn stuff down. Use the system to bring down the system. These are Bolsheviks, Leninists. This is what they do. Anyway, listen to this clip.
1: As early as 1928, the communists declared that the racial differences among our people constituted the weakest and most vulnerable point in our social fabric. By constantly probing and straining at this one spot, they calculated that eventually the cloth could be torn apart and that Americans could be divided, weakened, and perhaps even set against each other in open combat. We mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that the communists have placed their agitators only into the black communities. They're working both sides of the street. They want hatred, violence,
2: and bloodshed between the races, and they don't care how they get it or whom they use, even children if necessary. Even children if necessary. Kind of makes me think of what they're doing right now with forcing five-year-olds to get vaccinated in New York City, knowing that they can't even defend this. But the fact that he does it with with impunity, because he's... I'm gonna do what I gotta do. I'm in. I'm out of here in twenty some odd days. Bill De Blasio. On my way out, I'm taking everybody with me. Use the system to take down the system. Burn it all down, like the commie that he is. Anyway, I want to read you a uh, part of a transcript from that from that same video where they talk about the communist use of fire. Now I know back in the days people would say, "Oh, these guys are communists." People would say, "Oh, you're one of those red scare crazy types. You think everybody's a radical communist." If you know their playbook, you can see things coming. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's a radical communist. I'm saying that some people have implemented radical communist tactics, perhaps not even knowing that they're implementing these radical communist tactics. But that's what they do. So when we look at this Christmas tree uh, burning today outside of Fox News, or these federal buildings that are blown up by the American uh, ticking time bomb, the American terrorist, the homegrown terrorist we just talked about, Sam Melville, are there similarities? There's definitely similarities in burning stuff down because that's what communists do. Now, check out this transcript. This is from 1928. Robert F. Williams was one of the communist organizers, part of something called the Revolutionary Action Movement, and they produced this publication called The Crusader. In this issue of The Crusader, communists call not only for the extensive chaos within cities that we're actually seeing today, some 80 years later, 90 years later, but for putting a torch to every village and every forest, every field and every barn. The plan is for raging fires from one city to the next. I'm reading from the text. The reason, well, there's the value of sheer destruction. Secondly, it would force us to deploy our defenses and rescue units over the widest possible area. Third, the communists point out that as long as our police and National Guard remain concentrated, they're invincible. You gotta spread them out over an entire city and into the countryside as well. Maybe that's why we have forest fires, just like the Cloward-Piven idea, right? Just... Ambush the system and then they could be picked off one by one by ambush and the third value of massive fire to the communist is Psychological the average American they say is soft and decadent when he sees billows of black smoke rising from one horizon to the other when at night the only light that they can see is from a flickering red flame leaping into the sky He'll become paralyzed with fear and panic. He'll run away and hide and do nothing to interfere with guerrilla groups as they strike at the communities and power centers. This is what the Crusader explains. How to set up sniper units in crowded metropolitan areas. How to manufacture jumbo Molotov cocktails using the gallon-sized jug. And how to mix the gasoline with certain ingredients to make it burn like napalm. How to pour gasoline into utility manholes in the streets to set fire to main telephone cables. How to put sulfur tips from matches into air conditioning units to blow up large buildings. How to ignite... Gas mains and oil storage tanks. It explains how to use radio controlled model airplanes and how they can be used to fly explosive charges over heavily guarded fences in gasoline storage areas or ammunition stockpiles. It even calls for the infiltration into National Guard units. Revolutionaries posing as non militants. For the purpose of getting free military training and for gaining access to critical military supplies and heavy weapons. And then they finally say that any fallout in a minority revolution must create a state of crisis wherein almost all population, including males, would be forced to remain in their homes to protect their property and family. The middle class is very large, but it's not accustomed to deprivation and terror because of this affluence. It has waxed soft. It has no stomach for massive fire, blood, or violence. The motive force behind its life drive is its endless pursuit of prestige, conspicuous consumption, and sensual pleasure. A few years of violent, sporadic, and highly destructive uprisings will set the stage for the grand finale. After the stage is properly set through the protracted struggle, America could be brought to its knees in 90 days of highly organized, fierce fighting, sabotage, and massive firestone. That is a quote from the Crusader, written by Robert F. Williams. So now you tell me. You just heard from the bomber's son. He explained that he taught the Puerto Rican separatists from the other group, not the FALN, but the other guys, how to use these bombs. Today we have drones. Today we have all sorts of things. This sounds like a repeat of the summer of 2020 and little sporadic moments of people trying to achieve this. And again, they've been at this. This is a a century-long plan. They've been at this for a long time. I don't agree with what they're doing, but I think they're right. People don't like fires. That makes sense. People can be scared into compliance. That makes sense. Bombing these targets is symbolic and has a psychological effect on Americans. We have to know what they're up to. We have to stand for something. We have to stop them. We have to be part of the government that's working against them. We have to be part of the media that's working against them because they're inside the government, they're inside the media, they're inside the classroom. And the only way to stop them is to actually be there and fight with them. Not physically, unless that's necessary, but a good teacher cancels out a bad teacher. But if every last teacher is a communist, Marxist, Leninist, Socialist, what's left? That's my point. We have to stand for something because if we stand for nothing, we'll fall for anything. That's Hamilton. And the only thing necessary for this kind of evil to triumph is for good people like you to sit there and do nothing. So it's time for you to stand up and do something. Hasta la proxima. Until next time, America, I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, and this is America. This is
1: America.
0: New French toast sticks are so delicious. Some are saying that they're better than their mom's breakfast. Excuse me. Did you just say Wendy's new French toast sticks are better than my breakfast, Mom? Is that you? Answer the question. I said some people are saying that because they're so crispy on the outside and fluffy on the inside, and perfect in every way. Uh huh. And what do you think? I think it's time to tell people to choose wisely. Choose Wendy's new sweet and crispy homestyle French toast sticks. That's still not an answer. At participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours.